So we're going to be in Luke chapter 10 today. Luke chapter 10. And if you don't have a Bible, I'm going to walk through the text on the, the screen here. You can look it up on your phone. Everybody's got a phone. And, and um, we're going to look at this passage as we continue this series called Streaming. And I want to do this. I just want to pray uh, and, and ask God to continue to lead us uh, through this stuff that we've just talked about. All right. God, you're good. And we just, we love you. We thank you for just guiding and leading and directing our paths as a church and as individuals, uh, Father, that you would uh, just on our faith journeys give us such a gift like baptism to celebrate, Father, that we would get to pray over a team that's going to the Dominican, Father, and then certainly that you're gonna uh, make us a church that isn't just gonna stay within these walls, but th- that we'd continue to reproduce and plant other churches. And, and all of that, we just wanna follow you. We don't wanna get out in front of you. And we want to follow you. And as we dig into your word today, we want to follow you. So would you just allow it to penetrate our hearts, to challenge us, and that we would leave here transformed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Luke chapter 10 today is going to be our story. We've been talking about moments or stories that Jesus wrote about that were really parables. And in those parables, they connect us at some level to heaven and heaven to earth. And so one of the beautiful things about parables is at some point, just like this moment today, this story today that we'll read about, at some point, you've got to find yourself and place yourself in the story. We live in a a culture where there's this perception that we always have to have a crisis to be outraged at or fearful of, right? And at some level, while there are important issues that we need to not minimize, much of what we are inundated with carries a heavy price tag. And what I mean by that is that it can be overwhelming. I remember standing in a, in a dump in the middle of Santiago in the Dominican, and the first time I visited this place, it was so overwhelming People lived in it. All the trash, all the sewage from the whole city would dump into this one location and people literally lived there. Kids were playing in the sewage and that was normal life. And I remember just being so overwhelmed by the need. You know what I mean? I don't know if you've been so overwhelmed by need before, but it captured my heart. It just, it it tugged on every heartstring I had. And this is what our world has learned. Our world has learned that if it can somehow obtain our heart, Then it can have our ears and our hands and our eyes and our feet. They've made it a marketing ploy. At some level, if they could grab, and and you know this, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but if they can get your heart, then they can suck you into whatever it is that they want you to be invested in. So we have a world that's trying to capture our heart from commercials asking you to give to help abused animals to beggars on the corner of a busy intersection to mailers with pictures of poverty-stricken children to activist groups filled with passion. We're met at every corner with something we need to care about. And while many of them are good causes, some of them may not be, the reality is there's no shortage for people and organizations trying to steer your heart towards their cause. And for some of us, It's turned our hearts of compassion either into apathy or philanthropy. And apathy is really a way for us just to ignore it. And for some of us, not all of us, but philanthropy becomes a way for us to to appease those wanting something by throwing money at it. You'll be asked for something more times in a day than you can count. In fact, if you were to 
Count tomorrow. I bet before one o'clock in the afternoon, some of you will experience this. Some of you will experience your child's school asking for help and funding some needed cause. It may be a worthy cause. Your employer will ask you to join their community team as they plan on serving in a project this week or month. Your city will ask you to be involved in, in bettering your neighbors. Your family member will have an unexpected need that will pop up, and certainly you'll want to address that. You then get on social media to find out the the latest outrage that will need your attention, right? And then the restaurant that you eat lunch at, maybe even today, you won't even have to wait till Monday. They'll, they'll ask you for a donation in the jar that sits at the register for the cause that they support. The grocery store is going to ask you to round it up, right? For whatever. Have you ever felt like that when they were like, would you like to round that up? And like, if you say no, you're like, no, like, like I'm, I'm a horrible person. Anyway. Okay. So that, maybe that's just me. Then you stumble on your news feed, even after you told yourself you wouldn't, and you discover that there's more unaddressed needs than you could possibly ever speak into. I mean, it, we're just inundated. And it can all happen before 1 p.m. And then 4.30 or 5 hits, whatever time you head home, and somebody's broken down, they've got a flat tire maybe on the side of the road, and you see them, but to be honest, at that point, you're just so numb from being asked to help in so many different needs that you just seem to look beyond them. I don't know about you, but I call it compassion fatigue. And I think so many of us experience it. And what's happening to many of us is that it's robbing us of our heart for people and God's desire for us to be compassionate. When you experience it in every corner and you're so overwhelmed by it, if you're somebody who, who loves to help other people, you're, you're probably the first one to experience it because saying no to somebody is just so hard, especially when it pulls at your heart. Just recently, the, the Mr. Rogers movie came out. And can I tell you what I think the intrigue is with Mr. Rogers? This is just my perception. Somehow, every time he would come in and he would sit on that bench and he would take off his shoes and put on his comfy shoes and take off his jacket and hang it up in the closet, he was able to escape the outside world or at least disconnect from it but he did it all the while not losing his heart for compassion and he would he would look right into the camera and he'd speak right to the person listening I don't know I, I think in that people are intrigued how do I keep my heart of compassion while I'm inundated by all the crisis around me there's a quote that he said that I'll read to you this morning it says we live in a world in which we need to share responsibility it's easy to say it's not my child or not my community, it's not my world, not my problem. He said, but then there are those who see the need and they respond. And I consider those people my heroes. You can almost hear him say that, you know. My question for you this morning, and I do this often, but each week there's kind of a question. My question for you this morning and that we want to wrestle with is this. Have the needs around you robbed your heart to those in front of you? Have you ever felt so overwhelmed by all the needs coming in that you, you actually are overlooking some that are right in front of you? Here's why I think this is so important. Because we're getting ready to dig into this Luke chapter 10 passage. And Jesus is going to tell this story. And I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you right now that if you have at some level compassion fatigue, if at some level you came in this morning and you're like, man, if somebody else asks one more thing of me, I am going to just throw up my hands. If that's you, I, you're not going to get what Jesus has to speak out of this passage. 
So I want to do this. I want to set the stage by Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It says this. On one occasion, an expert in the law, and you're going to, I underline that because you're going to want to remember that phrase, that every, everything we're talking about in Luke chapter 10 is going to, it's going to center around expert in the law. But he stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what, was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this sets the stage, right? We, we know that he's standing up and he's testing Jesus. Now, test-wise, some of us may be offended by that, but this happened a lot to Jesus. People would, they would ask him a question or they would, they, not only that, but any religious uh, um, circle, like they would, they would debate these types of questions. But what we know is that he's identified as an expert in the law. We also see this in Luke chapter seven. Listen to what Luke chapter seven says. I think I've got it here. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But listen to verse 30. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. So the way that scripture, just a few chapters before this, identifies the experts in the law is those people who had identified at some level of being religious, but they had rejected God's purpose. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I found myself in that situation before. Being the one that wanted to have the knowledge to contemplate spiritual things, but always cautious to act on them. You know what I'm talking about? I actually think this is the way most of us approach Christ. We approach him very calculated. We want to be able to evaluate the circumstances so that we can determine a calculated response. And listen, most of us, when we come to Christ, we're counting the cost all the while evaluating his words. Right. Even this morning, as we read the text, we're going to evaluate the words and, and we're going to ask the question, what's that mean of me? Sometimes it comes out in a question like this. Jesus, if I follow you, do you get a say in my money? Jesus, if I follow you, will you, will you answer my prayers? Does this mean you're going to answer my prayers if I follow you? Jesus, if I follow you, will you make me address the way I, I treat my boss or treat my employees? Jesus, if I follow you, will that mean I can't date a particular person? Like, these are the things that we, we come and we ask and we kind of use as an indicator to test Jesus. And we test Jesus with similar questions. What implications is it going to have on me? And the question he asks, I would argue, is a very legitimate question. In fact, if you're new to the faith, if you're thinking about walking with Jesus, and for those of us who are walking with Jesus, we should ask the question, Jesus, what do I have to do to be saved? That's what he's saying. Jesus, what do I have to do to be saved? It's a great question, right? And so Jesus, in only the way Jesus can, I mean, if you read the life of Jesus, I'm telling you, he is, the way he interacts with folks just absolutely blows you away. This is how he responds. He says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? (laughs) He didn't say it this way, or I don't think he was derogatory, but... It was like, well, you're the expert. What are you asking me for? (laughs) You're the expert. How do you read it? And in verse 27, the expert in the law, he replies to Jesus. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the answer he gives. The the answer is actually a combination of two Old Testament passages. These two Old Testament passages were called the Shema. And and any good Jew would recite the Shema multiple times a day. It was part of the religious practice. 
And, and, and so everybody knew this, every Jew, certainly everybody sitting in that circle, even, even some who maybe weren't Jews would know that that is part of the Shema. They would have heard that before. And he literally just nails the answer. No one would argue with the answer. That, that's a great answer. And so, you know, he kind of, you know, sits back. He's like, bam, I knew it. Jesus, you're not that smart, right? And so Jesus in 28 replies. He says, you've answered correctly. In other words, ding, 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 ding. Do this and you will live. That's all you got to do. Just love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor, and you're good, right? Jesus agrees. Here's the deal, though. There's still tension because everybody has their moments, right? I mean, let's put ourselves in the situation. If we were talking to Jesus and we said, hey, Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? And he said, oh, Cody, all you need to do is you just need to love me with everything that you are and love your neighbor just like yourself. I'm going to go, okay. The problem is, like you, I have this 24-hour reel that runs in my mind. Sometimes it, it dates back to 48 hours of the people, the, the paths that I've crossed that maybe I wasn't um, Christ-like to. I don't know, like the lady this week that was driving 25 miles an hour down range line with her blinker on for six blocks. And, you know, I thought wasn't, man, she probably just needs encouragement. <laughs> I was evaluating my bumper. You know, could I really just move her out of the way? Like that's, you know, I, I'm, I, that's the stuff that I wrestle with. That's my 24-hour reel. I don't know... What yours is, I, you know, when you walk up and you're, you're going, going to get milk, that's all you want. It's just a gallon of milk. You go in to get milk and you walk up to the 10 item or less line and somebody's standing there with like 49 and a half items in their cart. And you're like, no, that's illegal. It's against every rule of the 10 item or less. You know, like these, these are, this is my 24 hour, my 24 hour reel. And I wrestle through these. Here's what I'm guessing at some level as he responds, he says, yeah, just, just do that, right? Just do that. That at some level, the expert in the law is thinking, Okay, but in verse 29, there's always a but, right? But he wanted to just, to, to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who's my neighbor? In other words, can you be more specific? Because everybody's got people in their life who they don't really want to love, right? Okay, it's just me. Uh, so so <laughs> he's asking Jesus, who exactly do I have to love? Who? And for most Jews, a neighbor was another Jew. It wasn't a, a Gentile or a, a Samaritan. In fact, we read that there were certain Jews that were called Pharisees and some that were called Essenes. And the Pharisees and Essenes didn't even believe that you had to love all Jews. They believed you only had to love Jews that were like you. In fact, in the Essene teaching, they would teach, and it was in sharp contrast with Jesus, but they would teach that one was to love all the children of the light who are part of the community, but to hate the children of darkness who stand outside the community. Let me put it this way. Love all the insiders and hate all the outsiders, right? Jesus knows this in the conversation. He says, well, do that. Just, just love your neighbor. And he says, but who's my neighbor, right? Who's my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus tells the story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, at face value, you may think Jesus just came up with this story on the fly, which would have been cool. But this actually was something that was taking place 
often from the journey of Jericho, uh, or from Jerusalem to Jericho. In fact, it, that, that journey was a very, while it wasn't very lengthy, it was a very treacherous journey. And, and there was about a 4,000 4, foot elevation change. So when he says go down, like you would literally go down to Jericho. I've got a picture of one of the paths here. So the, the, literally from Jerusalem, you would decline 4,000 feet down to Jericho. And what often would happen on this trek is robbers would hide behind walls. I've got another picture here. You can see some of the walls that were created along the path. They would hide behind the walls and in the clefts of the rocks, and they would jump out, especially when somebody was traveling by themselves, and they would rob them of everything they had and, and often kill them. They were violent, very violent. And so if you were traveling with a group or you had a caravan, typically you were more safe. But Jericho was a place of high, high that's where all the, the, the priests were uh, centrally located. And Jericho is a high religious community. So somebody that was a religious person in particular would make this trip sometimes by themselves. And so when Jesus says, hey, let's, let's, let's say, for instance, someone was traveling from Jericho or from Jerusalem to Jericho. Let's say they were going down to Jerusalem and some robbers came out. I, I don't know this. I, I use something every once in a while in scripture called the, the sanctified imaginator. You know what I'm talking about? It's like you're just your imagination. Like, I, I don't know this to be true. But my guess is if this guy's an expert in the law, at some point he's made this journey. He knows that how dangerous it is. Maybe even made it by himself. Maybe even experienced at some level the danger to what Jesus is talking about. And he says... They're going to leave him for dead. And the way this translates, actually the original text, isn't like he was half dead. It's like he had half a chance to live. In other words, he was just barely alive. They'd taken everything from him, even the clothes off his back. And he's laying there dying. And in verse 31, Jesus begins to, he begins to describe three different people that walk down the path and see this man. He says, a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32. So to a Levite, very religious person, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pour, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and took care of him, the text says. And verse 35 says, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you have. So Jesus identifies two religious leaders that the expert in the law would have immediately seen as his neighbor, Right? But then Jesus throws the man off by placing a Samaritan in the mix. You see, according to Jewish tradition, Samaritans literally weren't considered a Jew's neighbor. They were not their neighbor. Samaritans were different in every aspect. They were not obligated to, to them in any way. They had nothing in common with the Jews. And Jesus, in telling the story, couldn't have found someone more opposite or someone with more reason to keep walking. The problem that Jesus presents for the man is that while the other two acted like men of faith, the Samaritan acted on his faith. And those are two drastically different ways to live. He picks a man outside of the framework of what the expert in the law would have seen acceptable, and Jesus begins to redefine the rules. And he does this over and over in Scripture. So I don't, I don't know if you're, 
if you read if you read scripture very often, but if you do read about Jesus, you'll be so intrigued in the way he does this. Listen to what happens in verse 36 and 37. Jesus wraps up the story, and this is what he says. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? In other words, you're the expert. Here's three men. Which do you think was the neighbor? And in verse 37, it says, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Here's my, here's my tension. What is it that robs us of our compassion? I mean, we read that story, and here's, here's my guess. None of us want to put ourselves in the priest or the Levite's position, right? We're all like, well, I'm probably, I'm probably that Samaritan. I think I would like to, to think I would stop. stop. Here, here's the reality, and some of you are going to hate it that I'm getting ready to say this, okay? But because we're all sitting in church today, let's just assume that we're all somewhat religious. Some of you are like, actually, you know, somebody drugged me here. That's okay. Let's just assume, okay? In the story, when you try to place yourself in the story, when you try to place yourself in the Samaritan spot, that would be a very unique place to, to put yourself. When you're inundated with all the needs around, what is it that robs us of our compassion? I, I want to give you these quick takeaways. I think the first one is this. I think the first one's busyness. And while certainly they're on the way to somewhere else, I think in our culture, in our time, we spend so much time working on things that don't matter, don't we? So much time overlooking those who need compassion. In a Harvard Business Review, there was a study that demonstrated that wearing a hands-free Bluetooth headset, a product associated with busyness and multitasking, sends a stronger signal about our social standing than wearing a pair of headphones to listen to music, which is a sign of leisure activity, right? Participants read a short description of a 35-year-old woman named Anne, and they varied whether she was wearing a hands-free Bluetooth or a pair of headphones for music. And as in previous studies, they found that Anne was seen as a higher status when she was wearing a Bluetooth rather than when she was wearing the headphones. In other words, there's now come a social status that is equated with busyness. This is Harvard, Harvard that did this study. And while the review goes into a lot of reasons for it and how our culture is fostering this misconception, what it doesn't go into is the significance that our lives are missing out on due to it. We have somehow in our culture, for whatever reason, elevated busyness to a higher social status. I mean, ask anybody. Uh, how you doing, man? Just crazy busy, you know? There's an element of this busyness, I think, in all the things that we're working on, all the things that we're trying to do, we find ourselves investing in things that have no long-term impact. Specifically, relationships. I think we're spending less time investing in relationships whereas, where compassion is most needed. Well, why is that? Well, com- think, think about relationships. And think about the requirements of compassion. Relationships are something that takes a lot of energy. They're time intensive. They're laborious. So busyness robs us of our desire to show compassion. If you're going to show compassion, you have to have some kind of margin in your life to take time to stop. Here's the second thing is fear. Fear is certainly evident in the story. We get concerned about the personal cost more than the needed sacrifice. And in the story Jesus tells, when we understand the context, you certainly have to factor fear into the equation. If you knew that most carjackings happened at 32nd and Range Line, 
Would you roll down your windows, drive through slow, and enjoy the scenery at 32nd and Range Line? <laughs> Probably not. You're rolling up the windows and you're driving through as fast as you can, right? And there's some levels that this story of what the first two men do makes sense. But in that, the problem is that our call is to shine the light in the darkness. And if you spend your whole life avoiding risky situations, you'll never see God do some of his most amazing work and you will certainly never experience God using you in the most unlikely of circumstances. For those of you who have been to Guatemala on one of our trips, you know a story that Nancy tells about a a woman in Guatemala City. This small lady had a heart for children. And in the children, the children which she had a heart for and, and what she wanted to show compassion on lived in a zone of the city that was ruled by a, a very, very violent gang. And she decided that because God had called her to plant a, a school and a clinic in this zone that she was going to do whatever it took, what, risk whatever it took to make that happen. And she knew that there's no way that she could do that without getting permission from the gang leader. So she goes one day and risking everything, not knowing if she would walk off the porch alive, knocks on the door of this prominent gang member, gang leader. He opens the door and she stands there, small little lady, and she just says, I want you to know that God has called me to start a school and a clinic in this neighborhood. And I'm going to do it whether you want me to or not. <laughs> I mean, who does that? She didn't know if she was going to walk away from that. You, you, just, you just don't do that. And if you were to go today, if you were to go on a trip to Guatemala, what you're going to see is you're going to see a clinic and a school and that neighborhood is showing compassion on the children that are in the most need. Some of us, we don't want to get our hands dirty. We realize the extent, but some of us, it's just fear that captivates us. Don't let fear rob you of your compassion. Here's the third thing, and this one's probably a given, but indifference. And it's something we all struggle with. If we're to be honest, often indifference is the cause of our lack of compassion, whether it's because we're tired, it's been a long day, maybe it's laziness or our heart grows cold, it can have a significant impact on our compassion. You see, there's actually a significant difference between sympathy and empathy. I actually think the first two men that walked by the man who was dying on the side of the road had sympathy. Because you know what sympathy is? Sympathy is is feeling sorry for somebody. But empathy is putting yourself in that person's shoes. And there's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Have Have you ever seen the show Undercover Boss? You know what I'm talking about? So an undercover boss, everybody wishes that they could, you know, send their boss on this show, right? An undercover boss, what happens is the boss for one day or one afternoon, they, they, they go and they fill the role of a low-level employee at some level to see how things really are. Because when the boss walks in, you know how it works. Everybody's just kind of, you know, straightens up. But, you know, they get down to the low level and all of a sudden they start seeing things like the inefficiency. They start seeing things how like certain people were being taken advantage of. And it doesn't take long for them to be in that setting before they, they, they stop everything and they say, hey, they pull off the beard or whatever it is. I'm like, I just want you to know that I, I'm actually the CEO and some of this stuff has to change. It's just different when you put yourself in someone's shoes. That's empathy. It's actually empathy that creates that heart change. 
in someone. And I'm of the camp that believes that indifference is the opposite of empathy. Indifference says, I'm glad I'm not in your shoes. And indifference, listen, will rob you of compassion. Here's where the stories that Jesus told changed those long after Jesus had told them. Listen to this, because this is why scripture has to be hidden in our heart. It's so rich. In this story, like any parable, there's a question that would have been asked. And the question that's asked is, who are you in the story? That's what the expert in the law is dealing with. Who am I? Most of us read the story and at face value, we think, well, I need to be more attentive to those around me. I probably need to be more like the good Samaritan, but I like how one person put it. Jesus didn't have to use a Samaritan to make the point if the point was just be more attentive to people around you. He could have just used a, an ordinary Jew. He could have said a priest walked by and did nothing. A Levite walked by and did nothing, but then a, a Jew, just an ordinary Jew walked by and they were, they were a good hearted Jew because they took compassion. If that was the point of the story, that's what he could have did, but he didn't. Instead, Jesus chose to use a Samaritan. What if the person that we're supposed to identify with isn't the priest? What if it's not the Levite? And what if it's not even the Samaritan? What if the person that you and I are supposed to identify with is the person who's dying on the side of the road? What if the person that you and I are to identify with is the one that's been left to die on the side of the road, beaten and stripped of everything? What if, what if someone, let's say a Samaritan who was very unlike us and had every reason to hate us, chose to walk down the path that we walked to take our, our pain and our suffering, to put himself in our shoes so that we could be rescued and have life again? What if the Samaritan in the story is Jesus? You were all but gone. You had no chance on your own. Someone who owed you nothing stopped. And they took on your hurt and your pain and they carried you out of a situation that you couldn't carry yourself out of. And he brought you to a place where you could find hope and healing once again. What if that happened? Would you be willing to be the one who would turn around and rescue the one who was dying on the side of the road. And I would say, yes. Because we were the one that had no way out. And Jesus willingly laid down his life for us. I mean, it changes the way we see compassion in those that we might think don't deserve it. You can't be marked by Jesus and not be a person of compassion. If Jesus has rescued you from a life of emptiness, you begin to understand through empathy what that life's like and you want others to experience the same. I ask the question, have the needs around you robbed your heart to love those in front of you? Here's what I believe Jesus is calling us to. I believe he's calling us to love those along our path. He's saying, just stop, just stop the way I stopped for you. Stop and love those along the path. And if we have compassion, for more than that, so be it. But we must agree that we can't walk by the ones in front of us. God wants us to use what he has done in us to help those who feel like they have no way out. Maybe this morning you identify with someone who hasn't been rescued and you would say, man, I just need, I need Jesus to rescue me. I want you to know that you can leave today and know that. And if you're here and you have been, 
God rescued you and maybe your life wasn't crazy. Maybe, maybe it was not a super messy story, but maybe you're here today and you know without Christ, you would have nothing. The question is, does that compassion that he has for you and me, does that translate into those who you run into on the path and will it translate to this week, today, tomorrow? Either way, we have a response. Let's pray. Will you pray with me? Father, you know that so often we and we just are, are inundated by everything around us and all the needs. And to be honest, God, if we were to be, if we were to be super transparent, it just seems like every other moment, every other second, every other hour, someone's saying, hey, what about this? Or will you care about this? Do you have a heart for this? Why don't you do this? Will you give towards this? Can you serve in this way? And God, sometimes we, we just get so inundated that our heart for compassion gets clouded. We, we just start to become numb. We have this this compassion fatigue. But the reality is, Lord, you stopped for us. And I just pray right now because we have some people in this room who actually the field of work they're in is a, a field in which the needs are so enormous and it just overwhelms them at times. And I just pray, God, that in that, you would just remind us that it's just the one on our path. Father, as we, as we walk out of this room and it's the cafe or at the grocery store or even this evening, the one person in our path, would we just stop and we, we, we would just share your hope with them. Father, we want to be marked by compassion because of, of what you did for each of us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand as we continue to worship?